0: Heavenly Father, we do stand before you tonight through the power of the cross of our Savior Jesus Christ. If not for his willingness to submit to your purposes, we would not be able to be called your children. We would have our own guilt, our hands would be stained with our own sin, and we would be condemned before you. And so we rejoice tonight as free men and women and boys and girls who stand before you having received grace upon grace through the Lord Jesus Christ and giving thanks to you. We pray this evening as we study your Scriptures that you would speak the power of the cross to us, that you would proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would honor Him with our lives. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. may be seated. We're continuing our studies through the book of Romans, and we are now chapter 3, verses 5 through 8, which you'll find on page 940 of the Pew Bible. As you well know, Paul has been laboring since chapter 1, verse 18, to prove that there is no difference between the Jew and Gentile in relation to God's judgment upon sin. In fact, what he has actually done is show that the Jews are more culpable for their sin than the Gentiles Because they have received privileges from God, primarily the law of God and the sign of His covenant, circumcision. And therefore, their privileges that they had from Him do not tip the scale of the balance of judgment in their favor, but actually require more of them. They are more culpable and responsible to the Lord. And of course, that kind of doctrine of judgment brings objectors out of the woodwork and Here in chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, we really have a, a single line of questioning where Paul begins to deal with objections that are raised to his doctrine of divine judgment. The question is put to him, then, what advantage has the Jew? In other words, if we stand in relation to God's judgment in the same way that the Gentiles do, what advantage is there in being a Jew? The answer Paul gives is, much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then the further question is asked, well then, what if some were unfaithful? That is to say, what if a few of the Jews were unfaithful? Will that negate God's faithfulness to the rest of us? And Paul goes on to explain, no, God will be faithful. God will be faithful to His covenant promises. Whether that means to bring upon the people of God the covenant curses that He has promised for their unfaithfulness, or whether that means to bring the covenant blessings that He has promised for their faithfulness. So here we pick up the objections in verse 5 as they continue. Paul writes, But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us, I speak in a human way, by no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to His glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just." If you've ever had a friend or even a family member who has been addicted to a particular substance, whether drugs or alcohol, you know what it's like to live with them. You know what it's like to hear the continual excuses for why they have not been able to clean up their life, the objections that they might raise to your line of questioning to them as to why they have not been able to clean up their lives, and in many ways, The sinner objects to God as an addict to his own sin, objecting that God is not right in bringing judgment upon him. Here Paul is dealing with more objections to this divine justice that he has been preaching about in the book of Romans. And really the natural response, the natural response of the sinful heart is to object. Verse 5 begins with, "...but..." but Paul. It almost reminds us of the way a a child would object to a parent, but dad, but mom. And you can probably remember when you were a child saying that over and over, and if you're a parent, you've heard it a thousand times, but dad, but mom. Here the objectors, objectors come to Paul, but Paul. And with their twisted logic and their false claims, they They want to disarm his argument, much like a child would want to strong-arm parents into doing just what they want. And the questions here in verses 5 through 8 really reveal the nature of sinful humanity that's prone to find any and every excuse for pursuing our own way of life, a life lived apart from the gospel of grace and the law of God. Now, we don't necessarily mind being told as the church that in a general fashion, we are sinners. We typically accept that. But what is often uncomfortable for us all is to be told the specific ways in which we have sinned. And Paul has already done that in some fashion in chapter 2. We don't like to be told that we are adulterers. We don't like to be told that we are liars. That over the past week, we have likely lied in some fashion, deceiving our own bosses, making them think better of our work than maybe what they ought to think. We don't like to be told that we are thieves, that we have stolen people's reputation. We have stolen from our workplace, that we have stolen from God the very offering that we ought to give to Him, and these kinds of exposures of our own sin really kind of, they get under our skin, and they begin to creep around in such a way that we begin to fight back, and we object against God, and we object specifically of His assessment of our own lives. And if we've never experienced the grace of God, if we've never bowed down before Jesus in the gospel then what we really need for God to do is to silence our objections to Him. We really need Him to silence our objections to Him, our excuses that we make before Him. Because really to know Jesus is to have experienced on more than one occasion that Christ would come down and silence our lips, that we would have nothing to argue before Him. And it's really in that posture that we are able to receive the grace of the gospel, which is why Paul wants to be very clear and to fight against the objections that are raised to his gospel so that people are now in a position to receive the gospel of grace, having their lips silenced before God. When I was at Covenant Seminary, I worked in the admissions office and one of my jobs was often to go to the airport and pick up important visitors to the seminary. And one man by the name of Hudson Armerding, who has written a book on Christian leadership, a, uh, an elderly man, a fine Christian gentleman, uh, was arriving at the airport, and I went to pick him up. And on the way back to Covenant Seminary was about, about a 15 to 20-minute drive. We began to chat, and I found out that he had served in the military during World War II, And he told me a story about his service. You see, he was on the ship, one of the ships that arrived to send troops into Japan to sort of survey the scene after the atomic bomb was dropped. And he said that the soldiers, the sailors, were full of joy and uh, victory in them when they went out from the ship. And hours later, when they returned, not a one of them spoke a word. They had seen this horrible devastation. People burned badly, people have, having suffered such terrible agony, and their lips were now silent. And what Paul does here in the book of Romans is to begin to expose our sin and reveal the ugliness of our rebellion against God that our lips would be silenced. all, if you look at the end of chapter 3 of where Paul is going with all of this talk of God's judgment in verse 19, he says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. Every mouth may be stopped. It's the picture of all of humanity gathered before Christ at the judgment day. And rather than boasting Rather than grumbling against God, rather than arguments and excuses and objections being raised, everyone's lips will be stopped, and it will be silence before the Lord of all of eternity. And that's what Paul is doing here, is stopping our lips and silencing our objections because we're only able to receive the gospel to the extent that our lips have already been quieted before God. And what we need here is Jesus to come and begin to expose the arrogance of our own pride. And this is what he does through the Apostle Paul in a very gracious way. He, first of all, exposes the arrogance of our objections to God Here the Jews are really granting that Paul's argument is right in verse 4, that God will be faithful to His covenant. Verse 5, therefore, picks up, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Back in verse 4, Paul had told them that God would be true, though everyone a liar. And here they're picking up on that thought and saying, well, Paul, if that is correct, If God is true, though everyone be a liar, then my unrighteousness serves to show the glory and the righteousness and the justice of God. In other words, my sin is the backdrop in which the glorious radiance of the Lord Jesus Christ shines forth. Now You can see the the arrogance in that statement because what they're really saying is My sin is actually helping God, because they go on to say that God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us. In other words, if this is true, then God has no right to judge us, because my sin actually serves to bring about His glory. I'm actually benefiting God and showing forth His majesty by my own sin, And therefore, God has no right to judge me. It's the natural inclination of the sinful heart to say, I am above judgment. That in some way that I have a position that is immune to God's judgment. We find this in society all of the time. We get in positions of privilege, and we think we're entitled to things, and here The argument of the Jews is basically, Paul, if your line of thinking is right, then what we're doing in our sin actually serves the glory of God, and therefore he has no right to judge us. Now, what's going on there? It's actually a turning upside down of the creature-creator relationship, isn't it? It puts us in charge. It devalues God as the the creator and sustainer and judge of all the earth, and it elevates us to a position where He can no longer hold us accountable. Here, God must answer our objections. God must be the kind of God that we want. He must give in to our ways and give us what we desire. And it's sin that makes us prone to want to make God accountable to us rather than us accountable to God. In Psalm 2, this is is the work of the sinful heart. It says the nations rage and the, the rulers plot in vain against God. They want to throw off their shackles. Why? Because they do not want God to rule over them. You can look throughout the Scriptures and see this over and over. We see see Pharaoh, as Moses approaches him to say, God has said, let my people go. And Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. Or think of Caiaphas, the high priest. When Jesus was brought before him, sought to Trump up false charges against him and find witnesses who would uh, communicate these false charges against the Lord Jesus Christ. And we, we look throughout the gospel narratives and we see how Jesus has been the scorn of people's objections and how people have sought to ridicule him, how they brought up false charges against him, how they beat him, how they mocked him, how they nailed him to the cross. And we despise that, as we should. But all of our objections serve to do the very same thing to the Lord Jesus Christ. And objecting against God's rule over us has been the work of everyone's heart from the time they were born. You know, disbelief always wants to find some kind of objection to God in order to vindicate our way of life. We want to find some argument that disproves God's authority over us so that we can justify the way that we live our own lives. And people labor to find deceptively attractive arguments to do just that. Because disbelief, disbelief in God and opposition to Him is actually hard work. Romans chapter 1 tells us that a lack of faith in God is actually equivalent to suppressing the truth and exchanging it for a lie. It's it's an active rebellion against God. And that's exactly what we see here is active rebellion against God and His judgment upon all of mankind as people bring their objections before Him. We might think of some of the objections that we have to God in our own lives. God, You have no right. You have no right to demand so much of my life. You tell me that I'm supposed to take up my cross and follow you, that I'm supposed to give up every area of my life to you. I'm comfortable with giving these particular areas of my life to you, but these over here I will reserve for myself. God, you have no right to demand that I forgive that person who has sinned against me again and again. God, you have no right to demand that I love my enemy. Do you know what that person has done to me? And the response is always the same, yes. And do you know what harm your sin has done to my son? God, you have no right to claim my money. Yes, maybe some of it, but not all of it. You have no right to guard what I watch on television or tell me what I can view on the internet. You have no right to take away the lifelong dreams that I have had since I was a child. Those were my dreams, and you have taken them away. Don't you know how important those dreams were to me? You have no right, God, to take away my identity markers For my whole life, I've built up this vision of who I am, and I've presented it to the world. And I've said, this is the glorious picture of Matt Lucas. And one by one, you've begun to strip away every one of those identity markers. And I feel like I have nothing to cling to. God, you have no right to do that. You have no right to tell me who I'm supposed to marry. I can choose My spouse for myself, thank you. You have no right to tell me how to raise my children. I'll raise them in ways that seem fit to me. You have no right to tell me to put the interests of others above myself. God, you don't understand those people out there, and you can insert whatever group you want. Those people out there are beneath me. Why would I put my interests beneath theirs. And the most treacherous uh, objection to God is, God, you have no right to judge me and to say that I'm a sinner. And you know, these are really our objections. And the reason we can know that there are objections is because we actually withhold ourselves from God in these particular ways. We withhold ourselves from God in these particular ways. We don't let Him rule over us in these examples and many others like them. We may not have actually verbalized our objections to God, but at times we live in such a way that we object to His rule over us. And you see, it's the work of, of the gospel as Christ comes to us and is constantly pounding on us. The guilt of our sin is not simply so that we feel bad about ourselves, but so that we give up shaking our fist at God like Psalm 2 says, and that we bow before the Lord Jesus Christ because unless we bow before Him and see the arrogance of our objections to Him and to His way of life over us, then we'll never be in a position to receive the grace that He has for us. In fact, all we'll have is His condemnation. And so we... We are to let Christ expose our arrogant objections to Him. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this, that we're to let Him expose the folly, the folly of our arguments against Him. You know, the objector objector here really thinks he's very clever. Beginning in verse 5, he thinks, well, if my unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God great. He has no right then to judge me. He has no right to punish my particular sin. Now, you see the folly in that, don't you? You see the folly in that. If It's actually in the judgment and condemnation of our sin that God's righteousness and justice is held forth. It's not a free pass, Paul is saying. Such folly, he says in verse 6, by no means. In other words, it's absurd to even think this, that God could not inflict wrath on us. And he asks the question, for then how could God judge the world? Now, Paul doesn't waste a lot of ink and parchment here trying to prove his point. It's sufficient and of an answer to tell a Jew who knew his Old Testament Bible well Well, then God could never judge the world because the Jews readily accepted that God would judge the world, just not them. And so here Paul is saying, you've actually proved too much. By saying that he can't judge you, you're actually saying that he can't judge the entire world, something that was a horrible thought to the Jew as we've already witnessed in reading Psalm 58 tonight, that calls down the judgment of God upon sinners. He says, look, if you object against God in this way, then you've actually proved too much, and your argument is foolish. And he goes on to show further their folly in verse 7. He asks the question, but if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? So what Paul is saying here is, look, if you consider my doctrine of judgment to be a lie, to be false teaching, that is, if through my false teaching that you accuse me of, God's truth abounds to His glory, because remember, my unrighteousness serves to show God's righteousness, well, then why are you condemning me as a sinner? If my false teaching that you assume to be uh, this doctrine of judgment... If my false teaching abounds to God's glory, well, then why are you condemning me? See, Paul has turned their argument against themselves and used it against them. And he's showing their folly. They thought they could outsmart Paul and the Lord and it only served to show their own foolishness. Now, you no doubt have been in discussions or arguments with spouse. Family member, friend, teacher, and you've taken a position that you know you cannot defend. But you keep arguing anyway. And in doing that, you eventually have to step back on the last plank that you have to stand on, which is, it's true because I say it's true. And that's all that we have left. And that's all that they have left to object with. It's simply true because I say it's true. But notice how foolish arguments actually start. They start with a portion of the truth. It is certainly true in verse 5 that our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. That is true when He judges sin on the last day. His condemnation of sin will show forth His righteousness. Judgment. In other words, they're beginning with a portion of the truth, but then they extrapolate that into error. Now, I'll let you in on a little uh, folly of my own. First year of marriage, Sally and I were in some form of argument. I can't even remember what it was about, but I was in the wrong and I was scrambling in my own mind to figure out okay, what kind of argument can I come up with? that will vindicate myself, that will prove me to be right. And for some reason, what popped into my mind was David before God in Psalm 51, against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, I have to tell you, that didn't work very well. And if you're newly married, don't try that one. I've already tried it. It doesn't work. But you see, we often start with some claim of the truth and extrapolate it into error. And that's exactly what they've done here in their folly, the folly of their own arguments. You know, I spoke to a man on the phone a number of months ago who was calling to find out what I thought about what his pastor had said. Um... And I began to just sort of fish around a little bit without actually giving him an answer. And the, the problem that he had was with the doctrine of election. And he said, this doctrine that Presbyterians hold to is actually unfair. And I asked him why he thought it was unfair. He said, because God is actually obligated to give everyone an equal chance at salvation. And I said, really, why is that? And he said, well, God is a God of love. And I said, well, if God's a God of love, does that mean He is obligated to save every sinner? And all he could say was, yes. And we're right back to verse 5. God cannot judge the world. Starting with a biblical principle that, that God is love, and extrapolating that into error. You've heard people say it. My God would never send anyone to hell. Why? Because He's a God of love. But that doesn't necessitate a free pass to heaven. We start with a portion of truth, and we go down a wrong path in our foolishness and in our efforts to defend our own way. This is the work of the human heart. Paul says here, verse 5, I speak in a human way. That is to say, a way that guards the autonomy of mankind where I define reality according to my standards of what I think it ought to be. And what we end up doing is actually surrounding ourselves with people who think like us and justify our own position along with us. It's what's really going on here. Paul tells us here in verse 8, why not do evil that good may come as some people slanderously charge us with saying. Now in the ESV it's not quite clear but actually the, the King James and the New King James are a little bit more literal in this particular place that says as we are slanderously reported and as some affirm us to say. In other words, there's two groups here. There are the people who are slandering Paul, accusing him of saying, why not do evil that good might come of it? And then there's a second group that affirm, or that is, they literally report, they report or pass along the slander that has been made against Paul. In other words, they're they're taking this argument hook, line, and sinker. Without even holding up to the light of day and then examining it according to the scriptures to say, does this hold water? Because you see, they can't even understand the folly of their own thinking, because they're so concerned about guarding their own position. And Paul, interestingly, has a method of handling such arguments. You know, the first thing that he does. He begins with something that he's absolutely convinced is true from the Word of God. And then, secondly, what he does is he actually assumes the other argument. He says, Okay, well, then let's ask the questions to see if your line of thinking will actually work. And then he shows the inability of their line of thinking to connect with the truth. You know, that's not something that we only need to do with with other people in order to trounce upon them and prove them wrong. It's actually something that we need to do with ourselves. That we need to follow that same method so that we're not going down a foolish path of argument in order to get our own way. And in doing that, actually bringing God's condemnation upon us. See, here's an argument for having a a consistent view of the whole Christian life. A big picture framework of how all the various doctrines hold together so that we're not just pulling one thing out and then using it in ways that seem pleasant to us to justify our own position but in a way that by understanding the big picture of the truth of God's Word that He hems us in in such a way that we walk down paths of righteousness for His glory and out of love for Him. And so we're to have our own foolish thinking redirected as we understand the Scriptures themselves. Not just buzzwords of Christian theology, Not just knowing where the books of the Bible are, but actually knowing God and His truth in the Scriptures. Because you see, if we don't do that, then all the little inconsistencies in our theology actually become loopholes for us. They become loopholes for us so that we can justify whatever we want. Give some of the ways that we do this. We begin with an ounce of the truth. Things like, well, God wants me to take care of the things that He has given to me and to, and to be good stewards of them. That's true. But then we ac- never actually share what God has given to us to bless others. Instead, we end up idolizing them. Or Sunday is a day of rest for my normal activities, my normal labors that God has given to me. And so now I can do whatever I want with Sunday. God is ordained to save His elect people. And so He doesn't need me in the process. And I never actually have to go out and speak with a non-Christian and witness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And with an ounce of truth, we actually baptize our own desires But you know, Jesus never followed this line of logic. If you recall, Jesus, after his baptism, was led out into the wilderness by the Spirit. And for 40 days, he fasted. At the end of that time, Satan came to him and tempted him three times. In that last temptation, Satan took him up to a high mountain and he said, now Jesus, you look at all of these kingdoms set before you, and I will give all of them to you if you will bow down and worship me. And you know, it was a decision upon which the fate of world history and indeed all of eternity hinged. What would Christ do? And thank goodness He didn't go to the Father and say, Father, let us do evil, that is worship and bow down before Satan that good might result, that these kingdoms might be given to me. See, Jesus never went with an ounce of the truth and said, look, the goal is to get the kingdom and I'll do whatever it takes to get that, even if it means to rebel against the Father. Instead, He said, I will follow you, Father, whatever you say in your word, all the way to the point of death. And for our sake... He submitted not to his own wisdom, but actually to the wisdom of the Father. And it's the more we see Christ that our own folly is exposed. Like the psalmist in Psalm 73 who was questioning God's goodness because the wicked seemed to prosper. And it's only when he went into the temple and saw the glory of the Lord that he bowed before the Lord and said, I was a brute A beast before you. I was ignorant before you. But now I see. And we too need to have our own folly exposed so that we would bow before Christ and realize the foolishness of our own arguments. Well, finally here, the last thing that we need Christ to do is expose the pride of our own self-assessment. They accuse Paul here of saying in verse 8, why not do evil that good may result? Why not sin that God might be glorified? But you see, in reality, it's that very claim that had passed over their lips, isn't it? That was their objection back in verse 5. Why not keep sinning that God's righteousness would be on display? They condemned themselves, and they didn't even realize it. Their assessment of themselves was false. And their own arguments betrayed them in such a way that now they are condemned to where he says their condemnation is just. Francis Schaeffer used to use this illustration when asked the question, how can God rain down his judgment on those who have never heard the gospel and his answer was, to that was, this shows the, the dating of this illustration, but you could put a tape recorder around everyone's neck and record not their thoughts even, but just their words throughout the course of their life, and you would hear all of their moral judgments against everyone else, and all God has to do is play that tape back and say, you are guilty according to your own standards. And here, they are guilty according to their own argument. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, Jesus says. And our own words condemn us at times too. We make make jokes about other people groups, political parties, racial groups. We think they are beneath us. And God says, that is sin. We slander our enemy rather than show them love. We, we, we refuse to speak words of forgiveness the way that Jesus calls us to. But you know, who we are is clearly known to God. Nothing escapes Him. And yet one of our greatest fears is that we'll actually be found out to be a fraud. That people will actually see clearly through us through all those identity markers, and they will see us to be the fraud that we really are, that we're really not as great as we think that we are, that our assessment of ourselves is not really what it ought to be, that we think too highly of ourselves than what we should. And we all bristle a little bit against God's assessment of us at times. It's interesting that Jesus never bristled against His Father's assessment of Him. In Isaiah 53, this great passage of the the suffering servant, the Messiah who had come, told in verse 5, but He was wounded for our transgressions, He was crushed for our iniquities. In other words, He took our own sin upon Himself and claimed it as His own. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Jesus took our sin upon him. It became, in a sense, his identity for our sake. And yet Isaiah goes on in verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He opened not his mouth. There was no but Father. But Father. These are not my sins. No. He took them as His own. And He drank down the punishment of His heavenly Father. All the way down to the dregs. So that, so that, you and I can be set free. And you see, it's in the gospel of grace that we be... Begin to understand the freedom that Christ brings to us that we're no longer bound to exalt ourselves. We're no longer bound to create a greater self-assessment of ourselves. We're no longer bound to foolish arguments in order to get our way. We're no longer bound to these uh, objections against God that come from arrogance and pride. But we're actually set free in order to submit our lives to Jesus and to let His assessment of us reign so that we would receive forgiveness and grace from Him. And this is really the point to which all of Paul's relentless application of God's judgment leads. It leads us to despair in ourselves. It leads us to give up the right to argue with God so that we can experience grace. And it's only when our mouths are stopped that we can know Christ and His gospel. A number of years ago, a friend of mine went to work for a church, and during that time of employment there, it was discovered that he had done some immoral things. And so he was called before the pastor and several elders and questioned about his doings and he defended himself again and again he said this is not me even though the evidence was stacked against him and clearly he was guilty and he left that meeting and 15 minutes later he came back in tears before the pastor and he said it was me i am so sorry it was me You know, it's at that point that the pastor could reach out his arms and embrace him and say, Son, you are forgiven. Because when you bow before Jesus, there is forgiveness everlasting. Paul and all that he is doing in the book of Romans here up until this point is to say, Now let Christ silence your lips. So that there is no objection to His judgment of your life. And then and only then can you be in a position to receive His grace as we submit to Him. You know, outside of this, all that we have is our own folly and pride and the condemnation of the Lord. But it's actually when we come to the point whether we give up our objections, that we experience the glorious gospel of grace and the joy of the Lord. In just a moment, we're going to sing a hymn, Jesus, I Come, the third verse. I want you to take particular note of this. It says, Out of my rest and arrogant pride, Jesus, I come, Jesus, I come, into thy blessed will to abide, Jesus, I come to Thee. May that be our prayer tonight, that we would come to Christ out of our arrogant pride and bow before Him. Let us pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we, we know that the words that You speak to us in Your Word are often hard for us to hear. They are prickly. They, at times, condemn our own way of life. They show us the folly of our own judgments, and Lord, they show us how we have thought better of ourselves than what we ought, and yet we know that there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in us, and so we pray that we would bow before Him and receive His gospel as our lips are silenced before Him in terms of objections, but loosed, to sing His praises. May that be so for us tonight. In Christ's name, amen.